This is Franz. Welcome back to the Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I guess this is going to be episode, I guess, 17. So 17 episodes out there so far. And I've been looking at my statistics and seeing where my listeners are coming from. The bulk of them are still from the United States. And then after that, the UK comes in uh, not a too distant second. Then Canada, Australia, Germany, Turkey is right up there. I have about... uh, 21 listeners from Turkey, Ireland, the Netherlands, France, Greece, Belgium, Sweden, Russian Federation, a few, about eight listeners in Switzerland, some in Israel, about seven in Israel, and then we have Italy, Denmark. So this is really, I mean, we even have a couple out of Saudi Arabia, Malta, the Ukraine, Argentina, Hong Kong. I mean, this is truly Oh, a wonderful experience that I can touch so many people around the world, and I really appreciate you listening to the podcast. And I went on to iTunes to see if anybody had made any new comments over the last week. No new comments. But I looked and saw what other podcasts there were on uh, on sailing, and there's only a couple other podcasts that I see on sailing. One's called uh, Follow the Boat. And the last podcast they did was uh, July of last year. Uh, And they're on a sabbatical, I guess, since then. And then the other podcast that I see on sailing is Podcast Away, Live Aboard Cruising. And I see that uh, the the last episode they came out with was in 2011. So that looks like there's not very much new material that they've put out. Uh... Live Aboard Cruising was primarily down in the South Pacific, uh, New Guinea, Australia, the Solomon Islands. And this is really the only one I see out there on the Mediterranean. So I really appreciate you, the listener, supporting me in the podcast. And if you have a chance, I'll say it again. Please go on to iTunes and give me some comments and some ratings. It helps in my uh, overall view and the more people see higher ratings the more people are likely to listen to it and i'd like to get my listeners my listener numbers up there as high as possible it's uh it's fun to do these podcasts and it's fun to uh to see the numbers rise i'm going to try to do one a week but i got to warn you come this summer there's going to be about a two-month hiatus when you're not going to hear from me i'm going to go sailing and and i'm not going to do a podcast while i'm sailing i I always like the idea that I'll take a little hand recorder and do some stuff, do some recording while I'm sailing, but ah, I really just don't feel like it usually when I'm out there. I don't do much of anything but sail and walk around and see things and talk to people, and that's what I like to do. I've never... A lot of people have the desire to go sailing for a few years. That's never been my dream. I like my job. I like what I do. So I'm sort of a man of two worlds. In the summer, I shirk off my day job and I go travel. I go sailing for two months. And by the end of two months, let me tell you, I'm really ready to come back to my life. I'm really ready to come back and get off a cramped boat and be able to stretch my legs and not have to worry about bumping my head every time I move around somewhere. I'm six foot two and and I have to sort of stoop down even in my boat. My boat has six feet of headroom, but not six feet two inches of headroom. So I like uh, I like to get off my boat at the end of the summer, but about now I'm really looking forward to the summer vacation. 
and I'm looking forward to seeing places that I haven't seen before. And I'm not really one of the people that like to go back to the same old place. I like new places that I haven't been. I did talk to Jules last year, mentioned that he got down to the Peloponnese, the southern Peloponnese, and I haven't done that. Maybe one of these years I'll have to do that. But this year it's going to be Crete, and next year I'm going to go up to the far northern peninsulas off of Greece and see that part of Greece. And then I'll have to think of what to do after that. But this last week I went, uh, my wife and I took a three-day trip, and we drove down to southern Utah and spent some time in St. George, which is a a town in southern Utah. But we went down. It's beautiful, beautiful red rock country. We did three hikes in uh, in Snow Canyon State Park. I took a lot of photographs. I'll probably stick some up on this post on the website. So if you want to take a look at some pictures I took in southern Utah, uh, make sure you go to www.sailinginthemed.com. Dot com and look at this post because I'm going to post a few photographs that I took over the weekend. But last night I played chess with my friend Roger. Now Roger was a person that when I needed help building my boat, he was always there to help me. He's a bachelor and he was always he was always willing to lend a hand when I needed two people to put on long boards and he was he spent a lot of time helping me build the boat. And as a result, he tends to have high priorities when I, he wants to go sailing with me. And so he's going to be sailing with me uh, on my first crew this summer. But Roger and I were talking. He's chartered canal boats in Ireland several times and absolutely loved it. And after talking to Jules last week and coming to the conclusion that my boat really is not a boat to take into the canals. It's a full keel boat. It does not maneuver very well in tight spaces. It draws about five feet, maybe a little more than five feet. So I'm relegated to the uh, to the main waterways in France, and I wouldn't be able to go into the little tiny canals that I think would be very interesting to see. But Roger has has chartered boats. He said the ideal boat's seven feet wide by however long you want it to be, probably around. 30 to 40 feet long. The new boats, the new canal boats that he's seen have uh, basically are set up for about four people, a double berth in the front and a double berth in the back. And he really enjoyed it. But I've been thinking about, uh, you know, if I wanted to take my boat into the French canals, well, then I have a couple problems. Number one, I've got the mast to deal with. And number two, I've got the uh, full keel to deal with and the restrictions on the draft on my boat. And then the big one, and I've talked about this in the past, is the VAT tax. And if I were to spend really any time at all in France, I'm sure I'd get bit for the VAT tax, which I don't look forward to paying. At some point in time, I may, but I don't want to do it any any sooner than I have to. Maybe... Maybe by at some point in time, the whole euro will collapse and uh, I won't have to pay it. But right now, the euro created a whole new bureaucracy that is not uh, very clear on how to go about paying the tax. And I haven't found a lawyer that's willing to talk to me yet on the VAT situation. And also, I haven't found a uh, boat broker that's willing to talk to me about the process of buying and selling boats. But I'm sure there's somebody out there listening to this podcast that knows a boat broker and if you do, uh, have him give me a call if he wants to explain the process to us. And uh, ideally, it'd be somebody that's been in the business a while and has seen a lot of different scenarios. And, 
and he may be able to tell us if it varies a lot from country to country in the European Union on how to go about buying a boat. I don't know. I'd like to learn because what I'm thinking, and just, this is just myself and Roger brainstorming last night. I'm thinking, well, maybe the best way to see the French canals is just to go buy another boat and see the French canals. Now, I have no desire to own another boat. Uh, the carrying costs on my boat, and my boat's a very reasonably priced boat, as long as I don't keep it in the most expensive marinas, is about, I just paid my insurance bill from Pantanus, and my insurance bill was $2,500, and then my mooring is around uh, around anywhere from 1500 to $3,000 a year, and then the usual maintenance I have to do on the boat usually brings the total annual uh, cost of carrying my boat to around 7000 to $8,000 a year. I mean, you have to replace worn-out parts. You have maintenance you need to do. Uh, like I say, I need new sails. I'm doing a lot of other things this year. I may have to put on a new windlass this year if I can't repair my old one. So you're always having to spend money. And boats don't go up in value. That's the bottom line. But don't think of a boat like you might look at a piece of real estate. Boats just decline in value over time. So what I'm thinking, and Roger and I were talking about this, it might be the best way is to buy a canal boat with a, uh, in, a, in a basically a partnership agreement with four, probably about four other people, four other groups of people, four other couples or four other groups of people, you probably got about a five to six month, if you extend the season out, five to six month sailing season uh, in the uh, in France over the uh, over the year. Uh, probably the other six months you're going to ha- have it out of the water on the hard or just in a marina, just sitting there. But you'd get a lot more use out of the boat if you break it up and everybody got their proportion amount of time on the boat and your carrying costs would be divided by the number of individuals you have doing it. I'm just thinking about this. I'm thinking maybe in the next few years I might want to go down this path of a shared ownership situation. Now Roger played the devil's advocate and he said, uh, well, what about if somebody wants more time? Or what about if the wife doesn't like the decoration on the boat? Or what about this and what about that? And you'd have to have a pretty clear understanding of what the group pays for and what you would be doing with your own money uh, if if I go down this path. But it seems to me that that would make a lot of sense. Roger seemed to think that he would be game for something like that. He thoroughly enjoyed the uh, Irish canals. And I really want to do the French canals at some point in time. But like I say, my boat's not the boat to uh, to, to do the French canals with. Well, I'm going to talk uh, today about the second year that I went back after sailing across the Atlantic and doing the coast of Spain, I left my boat in Santa Pola at the end of 1997 for two years. And then I went back uh, in 99, and the boat was just fine. The, the batteries lasted just fine. We'd taken them off the boat, and they'd been kept topped up at the marina. Great little boatyard just south of Alicante in Santa Pola that I left my boat at. And uh, and I went through the whole process before I left the boat of making sure I put it into customs bonds. So I had to spend about a day going through the bureaucracy of getting the boat out of customs bond again and back into the water. 
and we sailed up to Alicante. Alicante is an interesting town. Now, when my wife and kids were there, when we put the boat up, we were pulling into the marina at Alicante, and it's one of the few marinas in the Mediterranean that has finger piers. And these are piers that go down the side of the boat. Usually in the Mediterranean, you're doing med mooring. Uh, but this was one of the few that had finger piers. Now, in the United States, uh, almost every marina has finger piers. And the r difference between the Mediterranean and the United States is in the United States, we have high tides. We tend to have four or five foot tides some places and up to 20 foot tides other places. So med mooring is really not an option in marinas in the United States where you don't really have that much of a tide. There's maybe six inches, seven inches of tide in the Mediterranean, but you can make up for that by med mooring. So that's the reason you'll have finger piers in the United States and not finger piers in the Mediterranean normally. But when we pulled in, there was a man that was working for the marina that was there to take our lines, and he ran around... Uh, took our lines on one side and then ran around to the front of the boat to try to keep the boat from crashing into the dock because we were coming in very slow, but but my boat has a lot of momentum. And he ran around, and just as he was turning the corner, he fell down and, and uh, dislocated his elbow. And so he was in a lot of pain, so we finished up uh, putting the boat, mooring the boat without his help, and then went and got the uh, first aid people from the marina to come and help him. And uh, he was in a tremendous amount of pain, and the ambulance came and took him away. And instead of immobilizing his arm, they just picked him up and threw him in the, uh, in the ambulance. And my wife, who's a nurse, said, hey, if I'm ever hurt, load me in a car and take me down. Don't call the ambulance, because they didn't know what they were doing. They did a terrible job of they didn't immobilize his arm, and the very minimum they should have done is immobilize his arm. But they didn't. They just picked him up, put him on a, a gurney, and rolled it up to the car and took him to the hospital. And he was back there later on that night. He was walking around with his arm in a cast, and I'm sure he was uh, had a lot of painkillers because it was a painful injury. He was in tremendous amount of pain. But So, so that was, I forgot to mention that, that was sort of an interesting uh, memory from the, the year with the family uh, in 97. But when Roger and, and my first crew in 99 was Roger and a friend of mine, Fred Moore. Fred Moore has since passed away a couple of years ago. And Fred was a, a great friend of mine. He was a skier. And I used to ski with him all the time at Deer Valley. And he introduced me to a lot of my friends that I now have uh, that I ski with at Deer Valley. But but Fred and, and uh, Roger were my first crew, and we put the boat in the water, uh, mainly Roger and I. Roger and I did the work of putting the boat in the water. Fred, Fred showed up after we were in Alicante, so we didn't do much of the work. But in Alicante, I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago to the Australians that that's where these two women came and wanted to hitchhike. Uh, we're, we're hitching a ride on a boat. And uh, they came up to us and asked if they could sail out to the islands with us. And we said we just really didn't have the time to do it. And so we continued on. We sailed from Alicante up to uh, past Benidorm to Calpe. Uh, spent a night in Calpe. And then uh, the next morning we sailed on over to Ibiza. And we worked our way around the island of Ibiza. 
And I think we stopped in Formentera just for a minute or two. There's basically a beach in Formentera, not really much more than a than a nice beach. Um, at least I didn't see much. Uh, and then we went up to the town of Ibiza, and nah, I'm not too enamored with the town of Ibiza. We got some some groceries, that sort of thing. Uh, and then we started working our way around the uh, the south uh, east. No, the south. Yeah, the southeast coast. And we went up to a little, uh, a little inlet called Kayalanga, and it's spelled C-A-L-A-L-L-O-N-G-A. And we dropped our anchor there, and we were just sitting down and having our evening cocktail. And a charter boat came in, pretty much out of control, and dropped their anchor. They were under sail. They dropped their anchor no actually they weren't under sail they were under motor and suddenly they lost control of their boat they were heading straight for us and uh, and threw out their anchor and anchored right next to us and of course I was a little irritated uh, so I said hey what's going on and they said we lost our engine and I said oh okay so I got in the water put my mask and snorkel on and swam underneath and sure enough their whole propeller had come off the boat they had must have hit something because it looked like there was like a gouge in the propeller shaft where the the whole propeller had sort of wound off the shaft now i don't know if they put it in reverse and caught something or did something but they lost control of their boat and after i understand understood that then i then i had a little sympathy for them uh, but they were way too close for comfort so i said hey uh let me help you here so we we pulled up our anchor and we went over next to them and we said, here, tie next to us. So we side tied to each other and I used my engine to mo- motor them to an, a better, safer anchorage in the, in the, not, it wasn't a marina, it was just an anchorage in this uh, little bay and they dropped their anchor and, and were safe, but they were pretty much stuck there. They'd lost their engine, they'd called, it was a charter boat, so they char- called the charter company, but when I got underneath and looked at it, I thought it was going to be a little more trouble than just putting on a new propeller. Um, Well, we worked our way around Ibiza. We sort of went around that part of the coast. Um, Nothing really particularly stands out uh, about the island of Ibiza. You know, some nice little anchorages around the island. This is is nice because along the mainland coast of Spain, there's really no anchorages. So I was enjoying the opportunity to, to anchor again. Uh, first of all, it's a lot cheaper than going into marinas every night. And second of all, I just like being at Anchor. It's quieter. It's cleaner. It's easy to go swimming when you want to go swimming. And I like to swim. Uh, so we worked our way around to the north coast of Ibiza and then, then hopped over to uh, Mallorca. And we went into the little bay of, um, what's the name of it here? I'm looking at Google Earth while I'm doing this because it tends to jog my memory when I'm looking at this. Uh, Port Diantrax. Now, when we pulled in there, I'm looking at Google Earth. It looks like just one big marina there, but I think that's new since 99 because when we pulled in there, it was fairly open. There was one marina on the south side, uh, but now it looks like the whole bay is taken up with marinas. And we anchored there, and the next day we worked our way around to uh, Palma. 
And there were a few days, I mean, this is after over about a week period of time that we worked our way over Palma, Mallorca. And Palma's a beautiful, beautiful town. A uh, fantastic cathedral there. Uh, well worth a visit. Just just the visit to Palma is well worth it. It's a big, big harbor. A lot of yacht charter bases there and a lot of boat brokerages are headquartered in Palma. And uh, Roger and and Je- and uh, Fred, Roger and Fred got off the boat there and flew back to the States. I had a couple days to myself before my next crew was going to arrive. And, and of course, the Australian girls were, were back at this uh, marina. When we got there, the Australian girls were there. They were wandering around. I didn't really talk to them, but they'd, they'd made their way out. They were successful in hitching a ride on a boat out to Palma, Mallorca. But in in Palma, they've got a little electric train that you can get on that will take you way up over the top of the mountain, um, and it'll drop you back down into the little town of, I'm looking for it on the map here, Port de Soler, S-O-L-L-E-R. So I took this train over. I thought this would be a pretty thing to do, something fun to do, so I did that took it over there and I thought, well, I don't want to go back on the train. I want to see some other parts of the island. And I'm by myself and my crew's coming in that night. So I catch a bus from uh, Porto de Solar to Valdemosa. And Valdemosa, I guess, is famous because some artists, sort of an artist community there. And a very famous artist uh, spent a lot of time there. There's a garden there. Uh, that they lived in. It's sort of. Uh, I'm going to try to find the name of the of the artist. Let me see if I can find it for you. Oh, I guess Frederick Chopin spent some time there, and who's a, co- a composer, of course. Uh, I guess it was Chopin, Frederick Chopin, the sculpture. There's a some. That's his garden there. So that's he spent a lot of time there. It was a nice village to walk around and. Then I went to the bus station to try to get a ride back to uh, to Palma, and it took me a while to do it. I might have hitchhiked part of the way. I think I ended up hitchhiking back part of the way. And I got back to the boat, and my new crew had started to arrive. My next crew um, was uh, my friends Mike Johnston and Jess Sarantopoulos. They got on the boat. We worked our way around the... The, actually, we, we decided to, to be gutsy. Uh, the, the northwest coast is pretty much straight up, but it was the shortest way to get to the north end of the island. So we decided that we were going to, we looked at the weather, and the weather was very um, settled. And, I mean, the, the prudent thing to do would have been going around the island in a from Palma in a counterclockwise direction. And we chose to do the imprudent thing and go around in a clockwise direction. So we left Palma and went right along the northeast coast or northwest coast. I got to get my my northwest coast. And on, on Ibiza, we went, around the, we went around counterclockwise as well. So we went around, went around the southeast coast. I think I said north, southwest, but that was southeast. So we went in counterclockwise around Ibiza in in Menorca, or Mallorca. We went clockwise around Mallorca. 
Well, there's a little bay. There's only really one anchorage um, that we could really stop into on that coast. It's pretty much straight up and down. But there's a little tiny bay, and I'm looking for it here. Okay, I think I've found it. I think it's Costa de la Forada, which is basically just an anchorage with a little bite around the top of it. And if you're looking at Google Google Earth, it's at about 39 degrees, 45 seconds, 20.74 minutes north. Uh, 2 degrees, 37 seconds, 18.07 seconds east. And you can see this little bite that comes around the island. We anchored there, and I, not a very safe anchorage, but the water, the wind, it was very settled weather, and I jumped in the water to go swimming, and there were, I was immediately stung uh, by jellyfish, so I got out fairly quickly. In fact, I jumped in the water with a mask on. I got stung immediately, and I was quite a ways away from the boat because I'd, I'd taken quite a dive to get in the water put on my mask and I saw all these jellyfish floating around and had to swim underneath them to get back to the boat. Got stung a couple times. They weren't serious stings, just little uh, little stings. And then we continued on up the coast the next day. We didn't stop into Porto Soler, but we just continued all the way around the north end of the island and came down and, and uh, just found an anchorage uh, in, oh, I guess it's one of the two bays just to the uh just around the top of the island porto port de polencas i think where we stayed that night and not much there there really wasn't a town there we f- did find a restaurant but it wasn't it was really just a vacation beach sort of place not much of a town at all at least when we were there it looks like there's a little more development since then uh and then the next day we sailed on over to uh, one of my favorite little spots, and if you read some of the old history books of the British Empire and the S- British Navy, you'll you'll recognize the name Ciudadella, and it's a tiny little uh, inlet on the southwest side of Mallorca, and we sailed in there, spent a couple days in there. And there was a, a uh, I still have a knife that I bought because one of my knives on the boat. Uh, had broken and I needed to replace my one of my kitchen knives, and I bought it from a little shop there, and it says "Made in Sea Today," and I still have it on my boat. Beautiful little town, beautiful little inlet, very well protected harbor. We spent a couple days there, and then started working our way south around the island. Uh, so we went in a counterclockwise direction here. We stopped in at Kaya Caves and a few other places and worked our way all the way around to uh, uh, Mahon, M-A-H-O-N, Mahon, Menorca, which is a huge, big, very well-protected bay, and then spent quite a bit of time there. We were sort of waiting for a weather window because we needed to get the boat over to Sardinia. So we spent some time in Mahon, Menorca, Porta Mahon, M-A-H-O-N, Menorca. Beautiful town. I love that town. I'll be one day I want to go back there because it was such a beautiful and interesting town. And, and of all the Balearic Islands, uh, Menorca was my favorite by far. There wasn't even a comparison between Ibiza would have been my least favorite. Menorca would have been my 
uh, most favored in Mallorca was was interesting, but not as interesting as Menorca, the far the farthest out island. If you're visiting there, I'd recommend spend some time in Menorca, spend some time in Ciudadella, spend some time in Mahone, Menorca. And we eventually got a weather window, and it was a long overnight sail uh, to Sardinia. And so we left there, st- went straight to Sardinia. I wanted to originally come in on the west coast of Sardinia, but we were making such good time. Uh, and part of the reason is my family is going to be joining me the next crew. We were going to spend about three weeks with the family. And I wanted to go ahead and sail into or- Oristano, but we were making such good time, we just headed straight through the uh, Straits of uh, Bonifacio, and we went straight to uh, Bonifacio, anchored there for a night, and then worked our way around uh, to, I guess, you know, we spent some time working through the islands there. We stopped in Porto Cervo and Porto Pozo and and uh, all these little anchorages through there. Now, I needed to clear customs, right? Well, every place I went, the Italians didn't want me to clear customs. They said, oh, no, we don't do it here. You'll have to go somewhere else. And eventually, after about a week sailing around Sardinia, I finally got the man in Porto Cervo, the harbor master in Porto Cervo, to clear me in. And and even he was pretty lackadaisical about it. He said, well, not today. Come back tomorrow. Bring your papers back tomorrow. So I came back the next morning and we finally cleared legally cleared into it, Italy. I love the Italians. I love their their lack of respect for bureaucracy. Right on you guys. I appreciate that. So I eventually cleared in and we brought the boat back to Olbia. That's where my crew that's fairly close to the airport and my crew needed to fly out. So we found there's quite a few marinas in and around Olbia. And my next crew was going to join me in Obia. So my crew, Fred and um, Mike Johnston, left me in Obia. And then the family flew in. And the family and I spent a lot of time. We actually got stuck. There's a, here's a good story. We were There was a big wind come up, a big storm. And I'm not sure what they were called. It's been too many years. But we were in uh, just outside of a little town called Palau, P-A-L-A-U. And we actually weren't in Palau. We were anchored around the corner, and a big storm came up. And we decided, let's run for shelter. Let's get out of this wind. So we went to Port Palau, which is really the only marina in the area other than Porto Cervo. And Porto Cervo was too far away. We didn't want to go there. And there were about five boats rafted up uh, trying to get out of the storm. And we were just one more, and we were on the outside edge, and and... They didn't like it, so we went to the harbor master and said, "Hey, listen, do you have a place for us?" And the harbor master said, "Well, y- yeah. How big's your boat?" And I said, "28 feet." And he said, "Okay, I've got one spot you can come into." Uh, and he told me where to go. He directed me to where to go. Now, like I told you, my boat does not maneuver in tight spaces very well, and especially in crosswinds, it doesn't maneuver very well at all in crosswinds. And there was a big power boat that I had to turn to get down. And I was going in bow in. I wasn't even going to try to back in in this wind. I just went straight bow in, which gave me the most control that I could have. But my bowsprit was sticking out far enough that 
it caught the stanchion on the power boat and knocked off a couple stanchions on the power boat. Well, that turned out to be actually good because this storm went on for about a week. And the harbor master would not let me leave the marina until I had taken care of the damages to this power boat. And the, the gentleman that owned this power boat was a perfect gentleman. He understood. He wasn't upset. We came to an agreement. Uh, I, it, wasn't, it was several hundred dollars. My insurance company paid most of it. But the nice thing was, when everybody else was looking for a place in the marina, I was there, and they wouldn't let me leave until we'd, we'd paid off the damages to this other boat. And so we spent a week renting a car and driving all over Sardinia. We spent a full week driving all over Sardinia. Now, this is back at the very start of the Internet era, and I was trying to find a place to check my emails. And eventually the family left, and I took a train all the way down to, because I heard there was an Internet cafe in Calgary. So I took a train all the way down from the northern end of Sardinia down to Cagliari. And, of course, I made the mistake that I did it on a Sunday, and I got down there, and the Internet Cafe was closed. So it was sort of a wasted trip. The next crew joined me in Sardinia, and we spent some time uh, sailing around Sardinia. Then we had a big haul to get over to Gaeta, because that was where I was going to winter my boat, was in Gaeta. But along the way... There's this little tiny island out in the middle of nowhere that nobody visits uh, that we stopped in. In fact, I didn't even realize it was there until we started sailing by this island. Then I went down and looked at the charts. I said, oh, wow, there's an island there. Let's go check it out. So we, it's called Ponza, the island of Ponza. And we pulled around to the, uh, the east side in this bay in the east side. And we dropped the anchor and put the dinghy in the water and went to shore and Beautiful little town there, but the where we tied up the dinghy, there was raw sewage going into the water, so that sort of gave us a bad taste for that particular harbor. Uh, and this was the harbor of Ponza. So we got back in the boat and went around the corner, went up around the island to the uh, to the west side of the island, and spent about three or four days just anchored in a little cove. Uh, I guess the name of the bay is where we spent some time is uh, Kaya for for La, La Forna, L-E-F-O-R-N-A. We spent two or three days there and eventually got back uh, on our route, sailed over to uh, the island of uh, Ischia, uh, sailed around Ischia, and then up to Capri, and we put the boat away. But we put the boat away, I guess it was the end of July or the 1st of August, and we left it in the marina at Gaeta, which, in my my opinion, is a beautiful little town. If you ever get a chance, uh, forget Naples, just go to this little little town of Gaeta. Uh, G-A-E-T-T-G-A-E-T-A, Gaeta is how I think I pronounce it. There's a big marina there, and they were reasonably priced. And I left the boat there for that year. So I'm, that pretty much finishes 97. Lot, I've left out a lot. There was a lot that went on in there in that two-month period of time. But that was pretty much that two, two, uh, two months. The wife and family, we got stuck several times in storms in Sardinia, and there was a little, there was a little bay that we kept going back to because it was very well protected from the winds. And they had a, um, 
a sailing school there. It's on the island of Stagnali, S-T-A-G-N-A-L-I. And there's a big bay there that you could anchor in, safe anchorage, and uh, would be in a big storm and would be anchored and tucked in there. And all these guys in these little boats at the sailing school would come out and go sailing in the storms for the day. So it was always fun to watch them go sailing around and learning their techniques in a high wind condition. So they were good little sailors. They were having a lot of fun, and that was a good anchorage, good holding. Uh, we spent a lot of time sailing around all around these little islands. We spent some time in Porto Cervo and uh, spent some time in Olbia. It's interesting, the last crew, when I was in Olbia, my friend Dave and Scott were going to join me on the boat. And so I'm out at the airport waiting for them to come in because I don't know how they're going to find me in the marina, right? And so uh, they're supposed to arrive in the morning. And so I go out to the airport, and I'm just sitting there waiting for flights to arrive. And all day long, there's these drop-dead gorgeous women just getting off plane after plane after plane after plane after plane. It was just, I, I was enjoying just the scenery going by. I didn't mind it at all. But eventually, the whole day went by. Finally, my friend Dave showed up, but Scott never showed up. And so we went back to the boat, went to bed, and about uh, 2 or 3 in the morning, uh, Scott knocks on the boat and his flight had been delayed, so he had gotten a cab and just told the cab just to go around the marinas, show him from one marina to the other. He eventually found us, which is a miracle by itself, but he did find the boat. Uh, but just flights were hard to, uh, you know, nowadays I just say, call me on my cell phone. But at that time, I didn't have a cell phone, and there's no way for him to get a hold of me. But uh, that was that summer. We put the boat up in Gaeta and then the, continued the adventures the next year. Well, that'll finish this podcast. I've gone on longer than I expected. I thought it was going to be fairly quickly. Again, if any of you know a broker or an attorney, a maritime attorney that I can interview, I would really appreciate talking to them. Uh, We do it by Skype, so we just have to work through the time differences wherever that person happens to be. I did get an email from a, a Greek individual that spent a lot of time sailing in the Greek islands, and he said he'd be glad to talk to me about his geographic knowledge of his area and I may be doing an interview with him in the near future and there's another woman that uh, is from California that has sailed through the Mediterranean that has indicated that she'd be willing to be interviewed as well again it's just a matter of finding the time to do the interview and arranging the schedules with everybody involved I really appreciate you the listener Uh, I'll probably try to put on another chapter of Jules's Uh, sales through the French canals in the next week or so. So go back to the website and check once in a while and see if it's there. I think it's a great resource for you to have. Hey, if anybody's interested in possibly, and I'm talking several years from now, uh, joining with me and sharing the cost of a canal boat, at least I can start getting a list together of potential people of interest. Uh, Send me an email, Franz, F-R-A-N-Z, at medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. And that will finish up this podcast. Thanks for listening.